Good morning. It is a good morning. It is a good morning because the enemy has been rendered defeated. And Jesus does sit on the throne. Give me a minute. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 5. But before we get into the message, I need to address briefly to dress what's been heavy on my heart and my mind as I'm sure it has been with a lot of you too with the news Friday that we knew was coming but just the reality of it of the Supreme Court decision and just the state that our country is in right now. Um, I'm going to address this in full next Sunday. I just feel like this is something that we as a church family need to address together. And I think you need to hear from me on what's going on right now. I mean, we're all in this right now. And... um, I'm not speaking on it today because right now there is a lot of emotion being let out. I want to make sure I'm being led by the Spirit more than I am by emotion. There have been a thousand things going through my head ever since Friday. And I just want to spend this week in prayer and deciphering which of those thoughts is mine and which of those is the Lord before I stand up here and present it. But um, I would, I mean, most of you know I don't do Facebook. I don't have my own page. But believe me, I've been, I am made aware of all that's out there and some of the posts and everything. And uh, man, I tell you, there is a lot of emotion being spewed right now. And I, just even some of the people in the church, I'm like, really? Some of you, well, I'm not going to say you because everybody here is perfect, right? Some people need to adhere to the adage that it is better to, to uh, refrain from typing anything and let people think you're a fool than to post a comment and remove all doubt. Seriously, it's times like these where I'm reminded why I don't do Facebook. <laughs> I would just get too, uh, too involved in it. 
Anyway, so we will be addressing that next week, and I encourage you to come because there are some things that I know the Lord has shown me in this that uh, it's good and you need to hear it. Um, I'm telling you right now, we have nothing to be afraid of, okay? We have nothing to be afraid of. If we are in Christ and we belong to Him, He is orchestrating everything for the benefit of His bride. You've heard me say it before. Maybe not for the benefit of this country. Maybe not for the benefit of whatever political party you like to attach yourself to. But for the benefit of His people, His hand is all over this, in this, and it's going to be good. Okay? All right. Romans 5. Uh, We're going to finish up this chapter today. Picking up where we left off last week, we're going to start off in verse 12, so if you would stand with me this morning as we receive the word of the Lord. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the fence of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ, no matter what our government does. <laughs> So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that transgressions would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. God, uh, you are so good. And first of all, I'm going to ask you to just help me to stop blubbering and just get through this so people can understand what I'm saying. God, you are so good, and I just pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit would reveal Jesus to us, reveal the heart of the Father, that we may be changed by it. Lord, let us see you in all your magnificence and beauty. Lord, you deserve nothing but our praise, and we give that to you, even through the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I think I got it together now. In uh, part of the message last week, I talked about how Jesus' death and resurrection was not some tragedy that was brought about and caused by man that God then 
turned into something good, nor was it a spontaneous act of God in response to something that he didn't see coming. But the death and resurrection of Jesus was the perfect execution of a perfect plan birthed in the perfect mind of God long before the world was even created. And what Paul says in this text here about Adam shows us this. If you've been coming to ET for any amount of time now, you've no doubt heard me talk a lot about how all of the Bible is about and points to Jesus. It's all about him. You know, the gospel doesn't actually start in the book of Matthew. It starts in Genesis chapter 1. And that's what Paul is basically saying here. In Luke 24, you may recall the uh, account of the two men who were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus down this road. And it was just after news about the empty tomb had started to spread around. So these men were discussing this between one another when Jesus suddenly appears there with them and begins walking down the road with them. They don't realize it's him. And so he asks them what they're discussing. And they say, really? So are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's been going on the last three days? And so they begin to explain to Jesus about him, not knowing that that's who they were talking to. And then in verse 27, it says that Jesus answered back to him and that he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Before this, the Old Testament was read and viewed primarily as moral instruction on how we are to live a life that pleases God and remain, to his, remain in his favor and cultural history. When Jesus came, he was the very first one to read, teach, and interpret the Old Testament correctly, the way God had always intended for it to be taught, not primarily as instruction on how to live, not as hopeful expectation of something to come later on down in the future, but as the whole thing being about him. Several times when he was here with his followers, he taught how the Old Testament was the purpose of and the complete fulfillment of him. We good? All right. When Jesus left these two men after talking with them, uh, and then they finally realized who it was, he just vanished from their sight. And verse 32 says, They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was walking on the road with us, while he was teaching us the Scriptures? These men here, being Jews, had heard and read the Old Testament their entire lives, but never before like this. Never before explained as it all but being God's ultimate plan for redemption in Jesus. That's why I always stress the importance of reading the Old Testament the way Jesus did, with it all being about Him. In the book of Acts, it says that the early church would gather together for prayer and worship and reading the scriptures and listening to the apostles teach the scriptures. And I always thought that that was kind of weird. That in all of this excitement going on and all these miracles happening and people being saved day after day and church growth going on, why in the world would they get together and read the boring Old Testament? And it seems to me that that would just kind of put a damper on things. And why in the world were these men who were definitely not professionally trained in the Old Testament scriptures, what were they doing teaching them now? 
Well, I've since come to realize that they weren't reading it the way it had always been read. They were now reading and teaching it in light of what they had experienced in Jesus and what they were going through with the Spirit. The Scripture suddenly made sense to them in ways that it never had before. They'd look at the Old Testament and go, Aha! Now I know what this means. Now I know what this was talking about. These disciples now understood the Old Testament better than the, the scholars who were professionally trained and were now teaching in the synagogues. The apostles who had never been officially trained were now experts a whole lot more than those who were trained because they saw it in light of Jesus. Now, over the years, much of the church as a whole has gotten away from this and we have reverted back to teaching and reading the Old Testament the way it was done before Jesus as primarily instructions on how to live moral lives and character studies on the Old Testament heroes patterning our, that we can pattern our behavior after, putting us at the center of the stories and looking for some future thing that is yet to happen. And we've understood that a lot of it points to Jesus in a way, but somehow we have gotten away from the fact that it is all about Jesus and all fulfilled in Him. I mean, you've heard me say many times that the Bible isn't merely a collection of a bunch of stories, but all these stories make up one big story that God has written. And in the story that God has written, he actually uses literary devices that are used today when people write stories. You may remember learning about some of them in English or literature class. And I mean, God's the one that actually invented these things when you're able to read the Bible and see it as one big story. One of those is the technique called foreshadowing. And it is defined as a literary device in which a writer gives an advanced hint of what is to come later in the story. Foreshadowing often appears at the beginning of a story or chapter and helps the reader develop expectations about the coming events in the story. Well, the Old Testament is pretty much nothing but foreshadow, pointing to the climax of history that occurred in Jesus. And Paul says right here that it all starts at the very beginning with Adam. Now, with every foreshadow, there are always parallels, similarities between the foreshadow and what it is pointing to. And there are similarities in Adam being the foreshadow of Jesus. Paul points some of them out in this text, but I want to show you uh, some more there too. It's not going to be up on, I mean, in your notes, but it'll be up on the screen there. If you're sitting in the back, you may have a hard time looking at it. But, but look at this, and you'll see how much of a foreshadow Adam was. And he wasn't just a character in a story. Similarities they shared, first of all, Adam and Jesus both came directly from God. I mean, God created Adam with his very own hands from the dust of the ground. Jesus was the only begotten of God, meaning he came directly from him. Adam, physically, he came from his father, God touched him and created him physically, but he didn't have a physical mother. Jesus physically came from his mother, but he didn't have a physical father because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. By the way, have you ever heard the riddle of, you know, the the scientists who discovered uh, these two bodies that were perfectly uh, preserved and they knew they were thousands of years old and after all their studying, they finally concluded that this was the body of Adam and Eve the very first humans. And you know how they discovered that? 
they didn't have belly buttons. They were the first humans to not do that because they didn't have a mother, a physical mother that they came from. They just had the father. All right, that one was for free. Uh, (laughs) Next similarity, they were both referred to as the son of God. Adam's referred to that just like Jesus was. Adam, before the fall, lived in perfect relationship with the Father. When Jesus was here, he lived in that same relationship with the Father, demonstrating to us what that looks like, that he would come and restore that relationship that was lost in the garden. And Adam, his act of disobedience changed everything. Jesus' act of obedience changed everything. Adam, his sin brought death, and Jesus, his death brought life. Adam, his actions caused many sins. Jesus, many sins caused his action. Adam, all death came from him. Jesus, all life found in him. Adam caused the curse of sin. Jesus broke the curse of sin. In Adam, all are guilty. In Jesus, all are forgiven. In Adam, all are sinners. In Jesus, all are righteous. In Adam, all are doomed. But in Jesus, all are saved. And so you can see here, I mean, Adam, there was a whole lot more to Adam than just being the first human. I mean, there was a lot that God was doing in that and foreshadowing what he was going to do, telegraphing the big punch that he was going to lay in history. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45, it says, uh, Paul refers to Jesus as the last Adam. The first Adam, the one who came from God and affected all of humanity in one way, and then the last Adam who came directly from God and affected all of humanity in a completely different way. So you can see what Paul is talking about here when he says that Adam was a type or a foreshadow of him who was to come, Jesus. Now there's two things that Uh, Paul is basically laying out here that's obvious in in what all Paul says here. Number one is that all the world stands guilty before God. I mean, if this is the case, as if this is what Adam has done, we all stand guilty before God. And then number two, Jesus can be the only hope for the remedy for that, only hope for forgiveness. And again, this is why a lot of people don't understand how good people can go to hell. This is why they can. Because just as Paul quoted back in chapter 3, there is no one good. No one. In God's eyes, I mean, we've got our definition of good people, but it's completely different from what God considers good. And so the first point I want to talk about here for a minute. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Jesus. Everybody here on the face of the earth is either in Adam or in Jesus. There are no other options. There is no in-between. You're either in one or you're in the other. Every one of us comes into this world in Adam. And because of that, we're under the curse of sin. David understood this. And in Psalm 51.5, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin My mother conceived me. Being in that state means that we can't help but sin. Everything we do is sin. Even the, quote, good deeds that we do in life are considered a sin to God because they are tainted by the curse of sin that we are under. There is no escape from sin apart from Jesus. And so you can easily see why just picking any religion out there 
is not going to do anybody any good. All roads do not lead to God. If the first Adam was the cause of our condition, then the last Adam can be the only remedy for it. Now, there's two terms that you'll hear me use often, and you'll use often too when you read and study the Old Testament the right way, and those two terms are shadow and substance. Let me explain what that is. Right now, I'm casting a shadow actually a couple of them, up here on the stage here. This shadow is a representative of the substance. I'm the substance, that is my shadow. Now, if you wanted to learn about me, you could just spend the time looking at my shadow, and there are some things, there are some hints about me that that shadow is going to tell you, but it's not a complete and full representation That shadow leads to me. I mean, you look at it eventually, you'll see that it goes right to the substance. And if you really want to know me, know about me, you really need to study the substance rather than the shadow. Adam is the shadow of Jesus, just like many of the things in the Old Testament are. And so the next point, if the shadow Adam caused our separation from God, then the substance Jesus can be the only reconciliation. This is why it's so important to read the Old Testament in light of Jesus. I mean, if we are just doing character studies on Abraham and Moses and David and and Ruth and all these other heroes of the Bible in order to learn ways for us to live better, can you see how all we're doing is patterning our behavior after a shadow? I mean, what good is that going to do? Yes, we need to study the Old Testament heroes, but only in how they lead us to the substance. You can pattern your life and your behavior after a shadow, but God has given you the substance in Jesus to follow. And that's what he wants us to keep our eyes on. Anything that you read in Scripture, you should be asking, what does this tell me about Jesus, because that is the whole point of Scripture. Now I want to move on to something else that Paul says in this text. I really believe that God's timing in this is, I can just see it in in what we're going to do next week. But anyway, in verse 13, he says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. He's saying that although sin existed from Adam until Moses, most people weren't really aware that some of the things that they were doing were actually sin until the law pointed this out. And then in verse 20, he says, The law came in so that the transgression, sin, would increase. What does it mean saying that the law was given so that sin would actually increase? Like Paul said, before um, God gave Moses the law, people were sinful, and so he gave it to, to point this out. Charles Spurgeon uses, uh, or used, he doesn't use it anymore, he's been dead over 100 years. So he used a great analogy in how the law was given to increase sin. He said, the law to humans is just like water to lime. When you pour water on lime, this chemical reaction occurs, creating lots of energy, creating heat. When you throw sand in the mix, you get mortar, and that chemical reaction causes heat and those things to harden in order to keep bricks in place. 
And just like water by itself is a very good thing in its cooling and refreshing nature, when it comes into contact with broken humanity, it causes a reaction in us, uh, or, or water is, is so good in its refreshing and cooling nature, just like the law by itself is good and just and holy. But when it comes into contact with fallen humans, it causes this reaction and generates the heat of sin. That's what he was saying the law does. That's what it means that it was given so sin would increase. In 1 Corinthians 15, 56, it says the law is the power of sin. Romans 7, 5 says that the law arouses our sinful passions. Here's an analogy that y'all be able to relate to well. The law works just like Facebook. A lot of people say that Facebook is the cause of this, of creating a self-centered, egotistical culture with all of our selfies and status updates about what we're doing every hour of the day and all these tools and abilities to create whole web pages all about nothing but me. The truth is, Facebook didn't create this self-centered culture. It just exposed what was already there. It just created an opportunity for us to act on our self-centeredness in our need for achieving significance that we already had. I mean, just think about it. Our need to be wanted, to be liked, to be significant, to matter about something, we have now been given permission to beg people to like us. Please like me. Like my photos, like my comments, please. I'm asking for more likes. I just want more likes. <laughs> it's just revealing that sense of significance that is that deep down in our hearts. And it just exposed it. That's exactly what the law did. It allowed sin that had been in man ever since the fall to rise to the surface. It gave man an opportunity to act what was already in us. And then it exposed it. And when you read the Old Testament, you can see that the law just proved how wicked and rebellious we really are. Because God commands, man refuses. Because God forbids, man desires. There are some who might not have ever committed a particular sin had the law not specifically forbid it. It's like Paul says in Romans 78, the command thou shalt not covet produced in me every kind of covetous desire. The light of the law, instead of being a warning to avoid evil, actually pointed out the way for us to offend God the most, and we jumped on that opportunity. That's how deep our depravity is. We are so at odds with God that we delight in the very things that he forbids. And we detest the very things that he desires. One of the great scenes in the movie Indiana Jones is when he and his friends discover this tomb that they had been looking for that they think holds the Ark of the Covenant. And they pull the lid back and this Egyptian tomb is down, deep down in the ground. They climb down in there just a little ways. And they can see that this thing's probably a lot deeper than they realize. All they know about this thing right now is that it is spooky and it is dark. It's not a good thing. It's spooky and it's dark. They don't really know anything more than that. 
until Indiana lights a torch and throws it down into that darkness and it hits the floor and the light illuminated the condition of that pit. You remember what it is? The horror of those, that mass of wadded up wiggling snakes all over the place. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Is what he said. <laughs> the law is the torch that lights up the horrors that reside in our hearts apart from Christ. You know, a cancerous tumor left in the body will eventually lead to death. In order to get rid of it, a doctor has to actually do more damage to the body. And taking a scalpel and opening up a, a wound that wasn't there before, but he did it in order to expose that cancerous tumor, bring it up to the surface so that he can then remove it. So that sin would increase means that the law is the scalpel that God uses to create even more damage in order to bring the cancer of our sin up to the surface so that he can pour out his forgiveness on it and remove it. All of this is done in view to our eventual cure. Now, some wrestle with the question of why God would even allow all this. I mean, why? I mean, if sin is so bad and so grieves the heart of God and is such a direct assault on his very image, why would he allow all this in the first place? I mean, God, we can see here that God made Adam to be a foreshadow of Jesus before sin even entered Adam's heart. And so that tells us that this sin that's been in the world has been a part of God's plan all along. Why would God allow something so bad to wreak havoc in his beloved creation for so long? The answer to that is the same answer to pretty much any question you can ask about God. And the answer is in order to reveal his glory. All for his glory is why he did it. You see, God is full of all these incredible attributes like love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and patience and kindness. And he wants to display those onto his people so that we can experience the magnificence of his nature. But there would be no grace to extend if there wasn't any guilt. Mercy wouldn't mean anything if no one ever had to face a judgment. There'd be no need for justice if a crime had never been committed. Patience wouldn't be needed if there was no passing of time. If you are not a sinner, then God cannot have mercy on you. There'd be no need for it. If you aren't guilty, God cannot extend forgiving grace towards you. You would have no need at all of those things. And I tell you, this is what concerns me about the way we are bringing up this younger generation and essentially what we have, the way we have made children worship a thing. I mean, I've talked several times before about how many homes are so out of order because the children or at the center of that home, the priority in that home rather than the marriage. Marriage takes a back seat to the kids and families are falling apart because of it. Now, I'm a big believer in speaking blessings over our children. We need to do that, especially as fathers. We have got to be speaking blessings over our children. But our culture has taken that to an entire another level and we have bought into this 
this idea, this belief that the most important thing we can give our kids is a great self-image, a big self-esteem. And so we'll always tell them how wonderful they are and, and make them feel like the world revolves around them. And by doing that, we are creating a very self-centered, narcissistic generation who thinks they can do no wrong. And if they do do wrong, then what? It's got to be somebody else's fault. And I've been told I'm too great. It's got to be somebody else's fault. And if you pay attention, this is something you see occurring a lot right now. If a kid didn't get enough playing time, it's got to be the coach's fault. Gets a bad grade on the report card, it's got to be the teacher's fault. They're having a hard time being responsible and owning up to their own mistakes. And the reason that concerns me is because those who think so highly of themselves that they can do no wrong and always looking for someone else to blame will have a very difficult time seeing their own sin and their need for a Savior. There will be no seeking after grace where there is no sense of sin. A message of mercy is going to fall on deaf ears to those who aren't aware of their own guilt. No one seeks for mercy and grace until they have pled guilty to the indictment that God's law presents against them. That's exactly how and why the law came in so that sin would increase. Next point is this, to reveal our own desperate need for forgiveness, grace, and mercy. I've got another Spurgeon quote that goes right along with this, and this one's good. I think it's going to be up on the screen. Listen. He says, you are not in a position for him to display free grace to you till your mouth is shut and you sit down in dust and ashes, silently owning that you deserve nothing at his hands but infinite displeasure. It is in that attitude before God where we are able to see and experience in a tangible way his grace and his mercy and his love in ways that we can't even comprehend. That's exactly what Jesus was teaching in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. I'm going to read that real quick. In Luke 18, starting at verse 9, it says, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with content. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Those who are in Adam, sin absolutely reigns over everything. There is no escape from the curse and the guilt of sin. And just when we think we might be good, or we may have even improved ourselves a little bit, or we're at least better than some other sinner then we can just look at God's law and see the truth of Jeremiah where he says the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. But the good news 
is that you don't have to be in Adam. God's mercy offers us a chance to be in Jesus. And things are a whole lot different there. For those of us who are in Jesus, the great news is the last part of verse 20. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. All the more. When you are in Adam, you can never get to a place where you can sin less. You're just going to get worse and worse because sin is never satisfied. That's how eat up with it we are apart from Christ. But think about this. As much as sin abounded when we were in Adam, grace abounds even more when we are in Christ. Do you know how incredible that is? It means that in Adam, you cannot escape sin. Abounding even more than that means that in Christ, you cannot escape his grace. That is good news. Verse 21 says that sin reigns over those who are in Adam, but grace reigns over those who are in Christ. The curse of sin has been broken by the shed blood of Jesus, and grace reigns in its place. Apart from him, we couldn't help but sin. In him, we can't help but walk and experience his grace. Last point. If you are in Adam, there is no place you can go where you can escape sin. If you are in Christ, there is no place you can go where you can escape grace. It abounds even more. There is no escape. And that right there should set some of you in here free this morning. Those of you who think you have just sinned too big and too bad for God to ever love you, to ever forgive you, or have any inkling of his favor on your life. I'm telling you, if you feel bad for what you've done this morning, that's a good thing. Because you are seeing your sin, and that is God's grace and mercy bringing that to the surface and pointing it out, bringing it to the surface so he can expose it, pour out his forgiveness on it, and then remove it. Some of you need to hear this morning that there is no place you can go, no thing you can do that will ever move you out from under the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Nothing. Now, some have challenged me on that. Quite a few times. He said, Jason, you can't preach that. People will take that to mean that they can just live their life however they want to because they can never get out from under grace. They'll take that as a license to sin. Well, apparently, Paul was told the same thing because he addresses that very issue next. And we'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. Oh, where sin abounded, grace abounds even more. God, that is too great for us to wrap our tiny brains around. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you to come right now and let us see that. We will believe it, God. Be transformed by it. God, I do pray for those in here who have been just walking around with so much guilt for what they've done. Thinking that guilt is what is keeping them away from you. 
But God, let them see right now that you are letting them see that guilt so to use it to draw them to you. Because the only remedy for that guilt is not for them to hide in shame. It's not for them to try to to get it away on themselves or or to try to do things to make you happy. But the only remedy for that is for them to fall at your feet and say, I can't do it. I'm guilty, God. I'm guilty. And Lord, in that, they will feel your love down on them like they're standing in a hot shower. God, I pray that you would release that freedom in here this morning. God, for everyone here who has been in Adam, Lord, today will you bring him out of him and into you to be in Jesus, to experience the magnificence of your nature and all your goodness. Lord, we're going to spend the remainder of this time just waiting on and being sensitive to the moving of your spirit. Lord, I pray that those who you are speaking to would respond to you this morning. God, let us leave here different than we were when we came in. We worship you. You deserve all of it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.